fake fentanyl is going to be something that is not pharmaceutically manufactured. So it's not something you're getting in the hospital. It's not something prescribed by your doctor. It's something that's created in really it looks like a meth lab. Obviously, they're not making meth. They're making fentanyl, but the conditions are the same. And so this fake fentanyl is questionable, right? There's no quality control. There's no ingredients list. And that's what makes it so much more dangerous than other substances we've seen. Welcome again to Chino y Chicano. I'm Matt Chan, the Chino. I'm Enrique Cerna, the Chicano. Well, there is a fentanyl crisis in our country. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that's up to 50 times stronger than heroin and 100 times stronger than morphine. It's a major contributor to fatal and non-fatal overdoses in the U.S. Coming up, we're going to be talking to Nicole Rodin, a clinical assistant professor at Washington State University in the College of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. We're going to learn everything we can about this drug and why it has become such a crisis here in our state and throughout the country. And Matt, it's a serious crisis. Yeah, it is. I mean, more people are dying per day than any other drugs that had been in use previously, which is pretty alarming. The other thing is it's so prevalent and it's so cheap. And I don't think people understand enough about it. That's why it's interesting to talk to Nicole to get some actual facts on the table. That's why we wanted to talk to her to really try to understand what this drug is, how it is being used in the streets, how the cartels are involved, and what it does to a person that causes addiction and then it can cause death. Estimated 150 people die every day from overdoses to fentanyl. And that is just so scary that it has become such a problem. And among our children, that, that's the thing that scares me the most. Uh, this summer, I just hope it's not the summer of fentanyl and kids. Right. That's so scary. And it's a serious problem that we all need to know about. Here now is our conversation with Nicole Rodin of Washington State University. <laughs> Nicole Roden, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me here. As a pharmacist, you know what the dangers are of fentanyl. Why has it become such a danger and such a crisis? Yeah, it's really interesting because the West Coast here in Washington, we've actually seen it a lot later than the East Coast. So in the East Coast, they started seeing fake fentanyl probably closer to 2012, 2013. And we didn't see our first fentanyl seizure until maybe 2016. And so we're a few years behind, but we are catching up very, very quickly. First thing I really want to point out is fake fentanyl that we're seeing in the news and that has become such a crisis is very different from prescription fentanyl. And so prescription fentanyl definitely has a place, right, for um, cancer patients, patients in the hospital, um, Birthing patients who are getting epidurals, they all receive fentanyl at different times and places, and it's great. It does exactly what it needs to do, right? What we see with fake fentanyl is these different entities, right, outside of the United States, definitely not pharmaceutically manufactured, start creating these fentanyl analogs or fentanyl-like substances that are really, really close to it but just different enough. And with that, we get these really potent products, and we get these products that may have fentanyl in it, may not. We don't know how much is in it. We don't know really a whole lot about it. So it makes it very, very different 
from other substances that we've seen in the past. So it's wild. So what is fentanyl and what does it do to you and why is it so addictive? Awesome question. So fentanyl as a whole, right? Prescription and illicit fentanyl, they're both opioids and they are very, very strong opioids. So the one thing that stands out about all of these different types of fentanyl is they're super potent. And that's kind of what is scary, but also really addictive about it. And so when we have this fake fentanyl and it's typically used in a tablet form, right? This powder is pressed into a tablet. It works really quickly. So that gets into our brain really fast and dumps a lot of dopamine. That's that reinforcing agent in our brain that really creates addictions and reinforces addictions over time. So when we get it quickly and we get a lot of it, that's where we start to see it become a really addictive substance or medication. Another thing with fake fentanyl is that it doesn't last super long in the body. So it's in and out pretty quick, right? And so that person needs another another hit, if you will, or another consumption of it fairly quickly. So it has a range, but typically only lasts in the body a couple hours. And so when we have something that dumps a lot of dopamine fast and then leaves our body kind of quick, it creates this perfect storm for a high addiction potential. When you say fake fentanyl, describe what you mean there. Fake fentanyl is going to be something that is not pharmaceutically manufactured. So it's not something you're getting in the hospital. It's not something prescribed by your doctor. It's something that's created and really it looks like a meth lab. Um, obviously they're not making meth, they're making fentanyl, but the conditions are the same. And so this fake fentanyl is questionable, right? There's no quality control. There's no ingredients list. And that's what makes it so much more dangerous than other substances we've seen. So you don't know whether you're going to get a small amount, a medium-sized amount, or a huge amount, which could kill you, which obviously is doing to people. So there's no controls there. Absolutely. And even further than that, you don't know where in the tablet it is. So you don't need a lot of fentanyl to feel high and you don't need a lot to overdose. And so if all of that drug is stuck in the corner of one tablet, if you cut it in half, it doesn't do anything, right? All that drug is just in, in one side of it. So that's another thing that makes it a little bit more dangerous than other substances we've seen because so little amount is actually needed to overdose. Some people, I understand, take a pill of it. When they're doing busts, they find these baggies and they look like candies. And then some people smoke it. Is that true? Yeah, some people do. I do have a few patients who have smoked fentanyl. It, it creates a really distinct smell. Typically, when you smelled it once, you'll know exactly what it is when you smelled it again. Uh, most patients that I've talked to either smoke it or they do um, take tablets. Because in, in Seattle, it seems like the most the manifest stuff are the foil where people burn the tablet. And so that seems to be most prevalent that, that I've seen here in Seattle. Yeah, it definitely gets in the body a little quicker than taking a tablet when you're smoking it. Why is it so dangerous? Because, you know, people think of, you know, methamphetamine, crack cocaine, heroin. How different is fentanyl than those drugs? Yeah, so all of them are really addictive. Where fentanyl stands out is it is just so potent. So it works similarly to heroin. It works on the same receptors. It gets you a very similar type of high, but you need so very little of it. For so, for example, someone who's never used any type of opioid before, any pain medication, any type of heroin, 
they need very little amounts. And I mean micrograms to feel anything, much less to overdose. And so we started seeing a lot of accidental overdoses in the very beginning of our fentanyl journey, if you will, because people didn't know what they were taking. They didn't know how little they needed and they didn't know what was in the substances that they were consuming. So right now we're seeing it mixed with everything. It's being mixed with cocaine. It's being mixed with illegal weed. It's being mixed with methamphetamine, with heroin. It, it's kind of being integrated into all these different illicit substances. Well, that's so, frightening. Yeah. So there have been infants that have died. And have they come in contact with residue of the drug, which then has gotten into their system? Is that is what's happening in those situations? I'm not sure. I know I saw a report. I think it was out of San Francisco where an infant was playing in the park. And I think they came across some tablets in that instance. I think they actually did swallow it, which caused the overdose. Um, not typically do we see a lot of skin exposure that results in overdose, uh, especially with the, the tablet forms of fentanyl right now. There was a recent report here in Seattle of uh, a senior living place. There were opioids there. I don't know if fentanyl exactly might have been part of that, but there was some awareness that, that maybe that had been the case. But what are you seeing and, and why is this becoming so easily attainable and widespread? Well, it's easily attainable because it's cheap. When you don't need a lot of drug to make something happen, you can sell so much more of it. So it is a fraction of the cost of pharmaceutically made opioids, and it is even cheaper than heroin too. So that's one of the reasons why it's so accessible. The other reason is social media is making it so easy to buy counterfeit medications. And a lot of times, like we were talking about, people don't know what's in these substances they're buying. So a lot of times with high school age students or even middle school age students, sometimes they will contact people over social media, which is a lot less scary, right? That's much more camaraderie, much more peer-to-peer -peer contact. And it's a lot less scary than when I was a kid and it was a scary drug dealer in an alleyway that sent off all these red flags, right? So they're able to contact them over social media, order these pills that look just like pharmaceutically made pills. They look like Adderall, they look like Xanax, they look like oxycodone, and they don't know that what they're taking is fentanyl. Or you mentioned the very colorful tablets earlier, or they're making it look really fun to take these tablets. They just saw a shipment somewhere close to Spokane, glow-in-the-dark tablets. And when you turn off the light, the entire bag of tablets just starts glowing to make this really fun effect that makes it not seem so dangerous, right? It oh, makes it wow. seem like a party drug, which as a parent, I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on? You know, Seattle is wrestling with the whole criminalization of drug use. The number one by far and away problem is fentanyl. One of my concerns is that they're going to go to old traditional kind of ways of dealing with substance abuse and the criminalization and diversion and the programs. Fentanyl's a different cat. I mean, it's a different thing. What do they need to, to understand about it so they enact laws that will actually be effective? That's a tough one. Obviously, what we've done previously with substance use disorders hasn't worked, right? We are still ravaged in our community with addictions really prevalently. We also do know that over-criminalization of substance use does tend to hurt 
BIPOC communities a lot more than other communities, right? And so we see these really negative consequences, but no one's been able to figure out a way that's a perfect system that addresses it, but also gets people the help and care they need. One thing we really need to focus on is the treatment centers that we do have available and how we're paying them, right? Um, it's hard to get someone in treatment if there are no spots available. And so at least on the eastern side of Washington, we've seen a lot of strain on our methadone clinics, our opioid treatment providers, a lot of these different resources that have been available because so many more patients need them. We also know that fentanyl is a different type of addiction, right? You go into much more severe withdrawal a lot quicker than you would from something like heroin. So we need to be able to tweak our treatment guidelines to address that so that our patients are actively engaged in their treatment and actually stay in their treatment. So would you say withdrawal or just coming off of fentanyl I guess, violent or harsh. What is it? What's the difference? What's it like? It's tough, right? So you feel like you're going to die and physically you won't die like you will from alcohol withdrawal or benzodiazepine withdrawal, but you are shaking, you are sweating. It feels like bugs are crawling on your body. Um, some people report sneezing continuously. Like it is very physically painful. It's very emotionally and like mentally painful, right? Your brain is so used to another chemical making its serotonin and its dopamine and kind of giving that feel good that it doesn't make it on its own anymore. And that takes time to kind of redo itself. And so you have a lot of a lot of impact on the entire body system mentally and physically. Well, can it result in death? The withdrawal itself does not result in death where we see most commonly is someone feels so bad that they go back to using when their tolerance is decreased. And so they use more than their body is used to at that moment in time, which causes an overdose. Are you involved with patients that are going through rehab and dealing with this? Not at the moment. So I work in a clinic where we look at new and novel substances to treat substance use disorder. So most of our studies right now are looking at alcohol use disorder. So we do have some patients who have active opioid use disorder. Um, and so what I hear and what I talk to them about is kind of secondhand, right? In addition to their alcohol use. As someone that is involved in teaching, what are you telling your students about dealing with this type of crisis? It's hard. I think in medical education as a whole, nursing, physician, pharmacy, we don't get a lot of addictions training. We don't get a lot of perspective on what a substance use disorder is, which is tough, right? Because we're part of the problem. Dispensing and prescribing has been known to kind of start some of these substance use disorders. And so my main goal is to just educate about what substance use disorder is. There's still a lot of people in the medical community that think it's a moral failing, that think they're just not tough enough to get out of the situation that they have created, which we know is incorrect, right? We know this is a disease and we know it can be treated. My second goal in our students, but also in our community, is to talk about the treatments that are available. For all of our publicly funded programs, only about a third of them offer medications for opioid use disorder. And out of those third, maybe half of their patients ever get the chance to receive them. So taking a medication for 
say a fentanyl addiction or a heroin addiction, is still extremely stigmatized by patients, by providers, and it can impact how much we're able to engage them in care. So those are my main two goals. Is there sort of a methadone-like drug for fentanyl? You would actually use methadone. So that's what most of the clinics are using right now. It's another strong opioid um, that can help with the withdrawal. How they're um, treating them differently is they're tapering them up a lot quicker and their doses tend to be a lot higher just because of how strong fentanyl is. So is trying to deal with an addiction to fentanyl more difficult than dealing with like, okay, cocaine or heroin, meth? Is, is it harder to get off it? It can be harder, especially if the treatment isn't tailored to fentanyl, right? Um, so that can make it extremely difficult, both on the physiological withdrawal, but also on that mental piece of it, that craving piece. But truthfully, overcoming any substance use disorder is very difficult, and it can be very difficult for a long time. Well, one of the things that I'm most concerned about is we're seeing a little bit of an uptick of fentanyl use in kids. The amount of fentanyl on the streets right now and the availability, especially in Seattle, summer and all the kids have free bus passes and they can go wherever they want. And it's so cheap. I'm afraid that this could affect a lot of kids this summer. What can we do to to stop that? And how would we monitor that? As an educator, I'm biased. I think education will always help, but really having those very frequent and age-appropriate conversations with your kids over the course of time, right? There's never too early to start having these conversations with them. And when I say too early, I mean one years old, two years old, three years old, we start having those age-appropriate conversations. So by the time they get to, let's say, middle school or high school, they're aware of what medications and what drugs are. Any substance can be harmful in your body in high quantities, right? And if they feel comfortable talking to you or a trusted adult, it's more likely that those decisions are going to be a little bit more thought out than if they were just doing something on a whim or something that their friends might be pressuring them to do. So honest and open conversations is a good start and being really transparent. I think one thing we saw from the don't do drugs dare movement is that kids are going to call you out. Mm -hmm. They've got the internet in their pocket. They can fact check you. So in being really dramatic in some of the effects or telling them they're going to die anytime they take something, it's not effective. And it just erodes that trust between you and that kid. So again, what is effective then? Telling them what's happening. So how do these drugs work in their body? Why are we scared of them as parents, right? They think we're just dramatic, but no, we're scared because it's very strong. It doesn't take much to do a lot in a little tiny body, right? And so we're scared that they're going to stop breathing. They're scared that they will pass out or lose consciousness or make decisions that might not be the best for them under any substance. And so telling them how it works in the body and why we're scared And maybe what to do when you're in that situation. Who can you call? How can you get help? What is naloxone? How can you help a friend that maybe has made the wrong choice? I think those can be really impactful tools for kids. How do we get out of this? Prevention is definitely key. Addiction's hard in any capacity. And the more people we can prevent from starting that, obviously the easier it is, right? So when when we're downstream so much, just trying to survive, we want to prevent that from even happening. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's hard is predominantly it's people that society has kind of neglected, right? The underserved that tends to be hit hardest with addiction. So no one really cares. I mean, you look at COVID, right? When it started affecting everybody, the white dominant culture, boy, we we snapped too and we came up with a solution. Do you think something 
on that scale could actually move the needle on addiction in this country? I think that is what is moving the needle on this on this topic in this country. For one of the first times ever, when the opioid epidemic really started, probably between 1999 and 2009, it was non-discriminatory, right? It was affecting every socioeconomic status, every race, every gender, every culture, every religion. But what we saw was actually people of color, specifically black people were prescribed opioids less because of their stigmatization towards addiction. Um, and so we saw it hitting a lot more affluent white families more when we started seeing it getting more attention. So at that point, it did get a lot more attention and it did get a lot more resources and funding once it saw the widespread impact, if you will, of what opioids can do and what they did do. Hmm. Heard this before. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> from your perspective, too, as a an educator and also someone working on the front line of doing these this type of work or dealing with people that are, are having issues, are we doing enough at our universities where we're preparing pharmacists and doctors and nurses and in our society to try to get people motivated to realize, you know, they're the ones that have to also step up in dealing with this stuff. What else does it take? That's a great question. That's a, a multifaceted question, too. Do I think we're doing enough currently? I don't. I don't think we're doing enough. I think this is a bigger issue than people want to realize. And so I think there's a lot of education for our future healthcare providers, but really for our current healthcare providers too. The attitudes that they have towards substance use disorders really affects the trainees that they're bringing up and the trainees that are interacting with any patient, even if they aren't directly involved in substance use disorder care. So I think education will go a long way across the board and really opening up those resources. So knowing that medications like methadone or suboxone aren't dirty words. They're not moral failings. If my blood pressure was high, I would seek out a medication to help lower it, right? And I would stay on that medication as long as I needed it. I think the same sentiment needs to be shared for any other disease state, including a substance use disorder. Matt is battling cancer, kidney cancers. It's on the same level, let's face it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's a disease. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, drug abuse is painted so much as a moral failing. Mm -hmm. of the individual who's addicted. And, you know, I think we've made some gains in alcoholism. We understand that. And it's the same thing. We need the same amount of, I guess, care about the topic. That's why I'm afraid of that it's just going to be stigmatized and continue the way it's going. And we need to really change how we think about it because that's the only way that's going to get changed because we can't criminalize our way out of this. We need to follow scientific facts and methodology to get us out. And I don't know how we get out of this. Yeah, I've been in part of a few groups here on the eastern side of Washington where the emphasis was really put on this diverse perspective. So like you're saying, we can't police our way out of this. We can't really target this from one end, right? It needs to be this multifaceted, multi-perspective view on, yes, police do have a role. It's not the only role. Prosecutors have a role. It's not the only role. Medications have a role. It's not the only role, right? If there was one pill that could just cure it, we would be out of this. But it takes a lot of care and attention and engagement with patients, which also makes it really, really difficult. And so having these diverse perspectives, I think, is, is really helpful and another key to getting this 
a little bit more contained. Nicole Roden, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and to educate us, really, I think, about this. It's just really the reason that we wanted to talk to you so that we could uh, understand it ourselves, but hopefully the people that listen to this podcast will also take some time to understand that we have a huge challenge here. Yeah, we definitely do. But I do see hope and I do see a way out of it eventually. So I appreciate platforms like yours actually getting some information out there and I think every bit helps. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We want to hear from you. Reach out to us on Twitter at Enrique Cerna and at Lofonland for me, Matt Chan. You can also email us at chinoichicano at gmail.com and check out our Chino Ichicano page on Facebook. Our theme music was composed and performed by Antonio Gomez. You can find the Chino Ichicano podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and other favorite podcast providers. Please take a listen, download, and subscribe. We are posting video versions of our podcast to YouTube. Go to search and type in Chino Ichicano to find our conversations. I'm Matt Chan, the Chino. I'm Enrique Cerna, the Chicano. We'll talk more later. Yeah.